Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert along with Sports Radio 610, Sean Bajani. And if you're new to the show, welcome to the party. 45 years in journalism between the two of us, over 35 covering sports in the H. And tons on the docket for this one. March Madness for the Cougars. A rare positive Rockets trend. A tribute to a lost Astro and the best football team in Houston right now today. But the story of the weekend is the Panthers leapfrogging the Texans and trading with the Bears. They swap first-round pick, Sean, and the Panthers give up their first-round pick next year, their second-rounder this year and in 2025, and their number one receiver, number one overall receiver, DJ Moore, giving Justin Fields a legit number one. What do you think this means from a Texans angle? In one sense, uh, it doesn't really mean anything for the Texans because they still are where they were before the deal happened there at the number two spot. You know, all the deal did really between the Panthers and the Bears is it drove the ask up. At least it set the bar for the ask and what it's going to take to move into that number one spot. It's a month and change still away from the April 27th first round of the NFL draft. So all you've created now is between now and then you've driven desperation. You've driven the want, the need. You've gotten teams, their GMs, the owners wheels spinning and conversations are to be had. It looks like the Panthers came away from the combine sold on a particular guy, presumably a quarterback. But, you know, I've heard conversations regarding whether or not they'd consider moving out of that spot if the ask is right. And it's not really a bad idea considering what I just said. All you're doing now is driving the ask up. They set the bar. Can they recoup what they just gave up to the Bears and get another player and more picks? I don't know. It just seems like you don't make a deal like this unless you know who you want the more you think about it. And Vegas has C.J. Stroud as the clear-cut favorite right now. It's still early. As right as Vegas is at times, they're not very good on the futures. And right now, the bet is is that it's still a future. You still have a month and change away. And we know this, lines change all the time. Bryce Young's pro day isn't coming up until April 6th. So what if he looks absolutely phenomenal at his pro day? And then April 7th or the evening of April 6th, Bryce Young is now all of a sudden the clear-cut favorite for the number one overall pick. I want to wait and see how this thing plays out. What this means, first of all, is that the Texans don't have control of the first overall pick because Carolina, I I just don't see them trading out of this. This is a a deal. This is all in deal. And you want to get your guy and you know who your guy is. There are reports that I find strange that the Panthers owner Once Bryce, but new head coach Frank Reich wants Stroud, which would be bizarre, Sean, if they make this trade, gave up all this draft capital without knowing which quarterback that they want. Yeah, and that leads a little bit of credence, I guess, to the idea that John John Harris had. Um, he's a football guru, and it's something that I heard him talk uh, talk about a few nights ago before even the reports came out about the disparity on what the owner of the Panthers wants versus Frank Reich, their new head coach, is that you at least put yourself in position. You own the draft. You have the ability to manipulate what happens from the top spot And yeah, maybe it is as simple as it comes down to Young or Stroud. And that's fine if that's the case. 
so long as you're settling on one guy. And in between now and then, if the Texans or the Colts or the Raiders or surprise team makes a phone call and offers you something that you just simply can't refuse, and at the very least, it gives you an opportunity to recoup what you gave up to the Chicago Bears uh, going from nine to one, then then you're going to listen to that. But I, I, I don't know. Like, I, there is an element of certainty here on behalf of a lot of people like you have to know what you're going to do if you make a deal like this if you go back to the combine you listen to uh their general manager i can't remember his name right now fitterer you know he said hey look you don't make a move unless you've got conviction on a guy and to me the more and more i read those quotes from him it's almost like he's setting the stage at this time of year you know people call it the lying season I kind of tend to believe that more than the other thing. Like, if you can tie these reports to one specific player a month and a half out of the draft, I'm really not buying it. I take that with a grain of salt at best. I think he might just be playing the game, setting the stage, creating smoke and mirrors, and at the end of the day, it's a month and a half out. He's not going to tell you. Nobody's going to tell you. Nothing's going to leak at this point in time in regards to what specific player they're thinking. I really do believe that there might be a little bit of a separation between what ownership wants and what the the, the new coaching regime wants, and we'll just have to, have, to, have to wait and see. But something tells me we might not have seen the last move of this number one spot. I don't know how many times in history it's happened, maybe never, but I want to wait and see on this one. Yeah, I just think it's ridiculous if you're telling me that they're going to trade all of their draft capital to move up and then they're going to trade out of that. The whole reason you would trade up is you want a quarterback and they need a quarterback yep. and you want to pick the quarterback that you want. You don't want to settle for the second or third best quarterback and you gave up your number one wide receiver. So now I got to recoup, recoup a number one wide receiver and the draft capital, and I'm going to move down and pray that the quarterback that I want on the board is still there, yeah. you know, two, three, four, five, six picks late. No, I don't. That's just no way. That, you know, it doesn't seem plausible, doesn't seem logical, but circle back, the, the team they made this deal with, you know, in regards to the Panthers, the Bears moving back from one to nine. We might have learned a little bit more about the Chicago Bears than we did about the Carolina Panthers in this instance. Is a couple of things. One, it's obvious that the bears don't covet you know one of the top two quarterbacks in this draft but i think it's also pretty obvious they don't covet will anderson and potentially jalen carter now it remains to be seen you know what carter and his legal troubles you know are going to mean in terms of his draft status is it going to cost him being a top three pick does he still make it to the top 10 is this part of the bears strategy where they get this draft haul from the Panthers and they're still sitting there at the nine spot. I think he's going to drop precipitously because yeah. there are more reports coming out about him speeding and mm -hmm. getting caught speeding since the incident in question. This is a guy that there's the, the question marks are going up and up and up and up. And yeah, there's always somebody that might be willing to take a chance. Usually that was the Raiders in years past. They were mm -hmm. always that team that was going to take a chance on a guy like that. Yeah. But at, at this day and time, we're in a new era, I think, in sports where, you know, red flags about a guy's personal life. And it, it, it's a big deal. And this isn't just smoking a bong like Laramie Tunsil. You know, this is much bigger, much bigger stuff. Yeah, literally life and death. Um, yeah. Much more serious. But, you know, in, in regard to Chicago, I'm thinking, you know, maybe they're going to sit and wait, read the draft 
and maybe make a determination on whether or not they can use some of that capital acquired from the Panthers to maybe move back up a few slots if, in fact, uh, they do want you know, a particular receiver, or maybe it even it is Jalen Carter. You never really know how the league sees, you know, a particular player until draft night. You can start to see that trend or the storyline develop, if you will. But I, I think it is interesting. Evaluations are always something, man. You know, at one point in time, we were talking about Anderson and Carter, Bryce Young and CJ Stroud. There's your top four in whatever order, however teams maneuver themselves to get in the spot to choose one of those guys. I, I never assume that defensive guys are going to be picked ahead of quarterbacks, and there is such a desperation. And I mentioned this as soon as the draft order was set. There's such a desperation amongst these top 10 teams that need quarterbacks. And these days... Like what happens is generally like you pick quarterbacks as early as you can. And those are the guys that are, they're just so much more valuable and their stock rises and rises and rises and rises. And yeah. you know, frankly, I don't care what the bears do at nine. Like at this point, I'm not a bears fan. I just want to talk from a Texans angle. And I just want to tell everybody out there. If you think you are positive about CJ Stroud or Bryce young, and you're like, man, this guy's the guy. And that guy's the guy you're drunk because I've been watching the NFL and college football for 45, 50 years now. And nobody knows about these quarterbacks. We think every year we know this guy's the guy, that guy's not the guy. And every year, everybody's wrong. Personnel guys are wrong. Teams are wrong. Uh, people are wrong. Draft people are wrong. Everybody's wrong. Nobody knows. Yeah. It's a quarterback, period. Yeah, but you have to have conviction. I mean, otherwise, why fill out a bracket? <laughs> Why make a World Series pick? Why make a Super Bowl pick? You have to be, uh, you know, convicted in your belief on, you know, a particular player or a team, whatever the case may be. Get, get on your Twitter and make your point. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you got the ability to voice it, then, you know, go ahead. I, I, I've i been pretty clear that I think uh, Bryce Young is the best college quarterback coming out right now today does that mean he's gonna end up with the best career and be a perennial pro bowler and win multiple super bowls Nah, nobody knows any of that crap but i'll tell you this much and i'll I ask you i'll ask you a question you know in regards to uh anthony richardson who for me checks a lot of the boxes and really because post combine i got to hear him i got to see him i got to you know, watch him for an hour. I know you're in and, love with this guy, but I, I, I just, I can't get into it because, you know, I just keep talking about, I don't know how many times I have to say this. Accuracy matters. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. Accuracy matters. There's no question, but, you know, uh, there are sacrifices that are going to be made in, in, in determining, you know, if that guy's the right fit for XYZ team. So my question to you is. Um, no, I don't want to pick him. No, I don't want to move down for him. No, no, no. No, not necessarily that, but I can't remember a quarterback, specifically a quarterback that might have leapt as high as Anthony Richardson presumably could, because while Vegas says Stroud, there are a lot of people that are saying, hey, AR-15's out there. Maybe the Panthers nab him at number one. You imagine the Panthers taking Richardson number one overall. When, what, two weeks ago, there was discussion of maybe this guy slipping to the late teens, maybe the early 20s, and somebody taking a flyer on this guy in the first round? Do I remember this? In the, I mean, there's so many drafts. Who, who knows? I mean, like I said, quarterbacks just move up these days, especially in the last decade. We've seen it. Like, there's just such an emphasis on that. I mean, and, and for good reason. 
Yeah, but to number one, I mean, not saying that it's going to happen, but I don't know, think so. I don't think it, it's going to happen. I don't think so either, but it is interesting to think about. Um, you know, we'll see. I do like Richardson, though. The Texans and this Jimmy Garoppolo thing is real, and they're serious about pursuing him. You get Jimmy G. Who's the other quarterback you're going to take a flyer on? And at what point in the draft do you do so if you're the Texans? No, it's not going to happen. I've already said it. That it's, that's that's crap. It's not happening. There's already talk about he's going elsewhere. They're, they're not spending a ton of money on some veteran that's going to be a one- or two-year stopgap guy. I just don't see it. Uh, I agree, and the ask apparently from Jimmy G's camp is twenty five per year, yeah, and that's yeah, something yeah, I hope it's not. Happen. I don't want anyone to do it. Like, stop it. We're 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 moving on. Okay, hey, we're talking. We're, I don't care. We're we're moving on. It's not happening. <laughs> I'm just telling you. You know, I'll, I'll buy you dinner if it happens. Okay, I'll buy you dinner. I don't want it to happen, but I'll take your dinner offer anyway. The trade wasn't the only Texans news. They also picked up a key player. More more on that in ten seconds. But quick reminder to subscribe and comment on YouTube. The best way to support our show is do that. And for anybody watching right now, a reminder that you can also listen on the run by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. But Sean, the Texans signed 30-year-old wide receiver Robert Woods, $10 million guaranteed over two years. The key storyline, he suffered an ACL injury in 2021. Prior to that, he had at least 86 catches in three straight seasons. Typically takes about a year to get back to 100% after an ACL. So this would be the time where he would be more towards 100%. He could be a steal at that price. Gives you a solid vet, assuming that you deal Brandon Cooks, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a great deal contractually for the Texans. Uh, you know, it's roughly $7.5 per year. This will be his age 31 season uh, coming up with the Texans. I like the deal a lot. Number one and number 1A, because it means the departure of Brandon Cooks is imminent. And that's nothing but a good thing for the locker room. Um, and for obviously on the field and a multitude of reasons, he needs to be out. But, you know, you look at a player like Robert Woods, who just a few years ago was coming off back-to-back 1,000-plus yard seasons, could have had a third straight in 2020, fell a little bit short, obviously had the ACL injury, as you mentioned, and came back last year from it. Unfortunately for him, he had to play for the Tennessee Titans and spent three games with Malik Willis not throwing him the football because, one, he can't throw, and then, two, the Tennessee Titans just decided, eh, throwing is dumb when you have Derrick Henry, so we're not going to do that anyway. Robert Woods, if you look at the comparison between his production last year and Brandon Cooks' production for the Texans, it's pretty close. And Cooks, yeah, he played in four less games, but the most encouraging thing is Woods played in all 17 games. That tells me health should not be a concern moving forward. However, in the same breath as I say that, did a little bit of a deep dive on 30-year-old wide receivers coming off of ACL injuries. A study that was done from the years 2013 to 2018 took a pool of 20 players. There was only about three players in that pool that were age 30 or older coming off of an ACL injury. And none of them, with the exception of Jordy Nelson, ever went back to the type of production pre-ACL injury. And so it's a very anomalous sort of thing. However, better situation, better regime, better quarterback, better offense. Robert Woods, I'll take this type of production if all of those things are better. I think it's a really good deal, not to mention he's a leader. 
and he's been vaunted as a leader and a developer of young receivers. Van Jefferson in L.A. is an example. And then, two, he was also credited with helping bring Odell Beckham Jr. into L.A. when those two guys were there. And to boot, the Rams once upon a time ago made the decision to keep Robert Woods over Brandon Cooks. So I, I like the deal for the Texans. You summed it up beautifully. So let's move to the next note from uh, the Texans and free agency. Jonathan Owens, Tremont Smith, and Okoronkwo are all hitting the market. The Texans couldn't sign him. Are you surprised? Uh, not really. Not surprised. Um, I mean, all three of those guys feel like, you know, they drove their market, their ask up with the seasons that they had this past year. And so they want to. Uh, take every advantage that they possibly can and see what the rest of the league thinks about them. Do I hope the Texans bring uh, those guys back? Sure, I would love it. But can you find another Tremont Smith somewhere? Can you find another Jonathan Owens somewhere? Can you find a Obo Okoronkwo somewhere else? I mean, yeah, possibly. But I'll tell you this much, I'd like one of those guys certainly back in a Houston Texan uniform, and that is Obo Okoronkwo. One, obviously the familiarity aspect, but then two, I mean, the guy jumped off the the screen for me in the preseason in a crap defense for a crap team that was going nowhere. And only when he finally got a shot to start did you see the defense collectively, that front seven, start to play better. He showed up, showed out. Anytime he got a chance to be on the football field was a nuisance for quarterbacks. And late in the season, you started to see it prove itself out in the stat sheet where he was getting sacks. He was getting pressures. He was affecting the game. So I'd really like to see Okoronkwo back. By the way, Tremont Smith is the guy that I was trying to reference last show to you about the uh, special teamer that finally got an opportunity as a corner. And what Smith finished the season with two interceptions. I think he had two and two straight games or one, one in uh, two straight games for the Texans towards the end of the season. You know, look, special teams, we know how valuable that is. Uh, you don't want to lose a player like that. But again, you really love uh, Frank Ross. It is also about the coaching and not just the players. you got to get the players to get down to the nitty-gritty and, and do some things that not a lot of other people want to do, and that's be a great contributor on special teams. So I think there's another Tremont Smith out there. And I like Jonathan Owens, but let, let's be honest. He was a uh, – a guy off the street uh, who failed not once, not twice, three times, multiple times with the Texans and finally found his way on the field for a team that was going nowhere last season and ended up leading the NFL in tackles once upon a time ago for a few weeks. Can you find another one of those guys? Absolutely. Yeah, the only reason he led the league in, or led the league in tackles was because the Texans linebackers were not tackling anybody. But I thought, you know, maybe Simone Biles could cut us a little Right, you know, maybe hometown discount. Hometown discount, yeah. Let's go to what Aaron Wilson is reporting, that the Texans are interested in centers Jake Brendel, who you and I talked about, the Lions' Evan Brown, the Browns' Ethan Pochick, and the Vikings' Garrett Bradbury. They won't pursue high-end defensive tackles, but Aaron brought up the Jets' Sheldon Rankins and the Saints' David Onyemata, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, but those are some names, and it, it's interior linemen, which is always where you build a good team, Sean. Yeah, and credit to you for uh, pimping Jake Brendel's name months and months ago as a guy that should be a possibility, and maybe now, you know, it sounds like a probability. The 49ers, the Texans, a handful of other teams uh, interested in his services. 
probably none more so than the Houston Texans. At least that should be the case, obviously, with his familiarity and the scheme, the system that Bobby Slowick brings from San Francisco, along with, you know, a number of other coaches that have since made the trip over and are now Houston Texans. But I, I love the idea. That's really what it comes down to, right? Uh, I, I don't want to draft a center. Um, and throw him out there. I'm not in that business. Look, you, you wanted to develop a center. You should have done that this past year. This is turning the page. This is time to get better. This is time to win some ball games. This is really time to compete and get the very best out of a new system as you possibly can. If you can go out and get a veteran center, that's a plus. If you can go out and get a veteran center that has familiarity with the system and that could develop other interior linemen that you're going to build around him with, that is another plus. All right. Well, let me ask you this. A lot of smoke about this Laramie Tunsil leaving the Texans, potentially going to the Chiefs. A lot of, I don't know, stuff going on this week. What do you think is with all this stuff? I mean, you know, sometimes where there's smoke, there's a little bit of fire. Sometimes it's just smoke created by uh, people. Uh, one of the reports that I'd saw earlier this morning, in fact, there was two. And the latest one I saw was from... Uh, Twitter handle Chief Insider. He's got 12,500 followers. He covers the Chiefs uh, on the regular, has a podcast and another website where he puts his work out. He's the one that really mentioned the Laramie Tunsil stuff, you know, talking about like, hey, he's got one year left on his deal, $18.5 million. Uh, could this be a possible trade scenario between the Texans and the Chiefs? You know, the Chiefs, they're involved in, who is it, uh, Orlando Brown, I believe. Yeah, yeah what I don't get about this whole Chiefs, I just don't, I don't buy the Chiefs thing because they just had to cut loose Frank Clark because of salary implications. Yeah. Look, this is a team that just won a Super Bowl. They've got a lot of money invested in a lot of guys, and Larry yep. Tunsil is about to ask for a huge extension. I don't see the Chiefs seeing that as a value to where they just won a Super Bowl without Laramie Tunsil. And Orlando is not maybe the greatest left tackle out there, but it was good enough to win you a Super Bowl. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's almost the business that is. I'm not going to toe tap around. Forget about the Chiefs for a second. Let me ask you just from a Texan standpoint. You ready to cut ties with Larry Tunsil? You ready to trade him? I was just going to get to that point. Like, that's the business I want to be in. Where the Texans are right now, I don't want to pay him record-setting money. I don't think he's I don't think he's worth $24 million, $23 million per year on this team right now at this stage. You know, for another team with a certain type of quarterback that really needs it, maybe, and certainly, and he'll get it. And maybe the Texans are the team that gives it to him. But I'd really like the Texans to be in the business of, you know, let's go out there and get a a, a median-type player for, you know, a more affordable salary. And let's really concentrate on getting talent here because they need it across the board. Well, you know, I mean, but you're saying let's get talent here, and the Texans aren't in the business of paying. Look, you're not going to be paying a quarterback for at least five years. And that's where the real big money, you're not spending money on anybody for the next few years because all of presumably. your supposed talent is is pretty young. If you're paying free agency at this point, then it's not smart money. You're chasing your ch tail if you're paying big free agency money on anybody at this point. So Laramie Tunsil is fine. And the other point is you're bringing in a rookie quarterback, supposedly. And if you're bringing in a rookie quarterback, you want to have a really good left tackle. If you could yeah. go find a cheaper veteran left tackle i'm fine with that but that's a hard thing to find 
and, and, and on an NFL market, there, there's a big value in left tackles. If they can find that guy, fine. And you could swap Tunsil, get draft picks, and not give up too much to get that veteran tackle. I guess it's a good swap, but that's a lot to ask for from a Nick Casario that I, I, I've never seen him do anything like that, you know, as, as a general manager. That's fine, but he's also never been in this position as a general manager where he's actually trying to win ball games and build a contending team. So this is kind of, again, press the reset button on Nick Casario and then see what type of GM he is going forward. You make great points on Laramie Tunsil, especially, you know, look, if you're going to bring in a rookie quarterback, you want to obviously surround him, protect him things of that sort. However, every good left tackle in the NFL is not worth 20 to $24 million per year. There's a lot of good left tackles out there that are making, you know, median salaries, you know, uh, 10, 15, $17 million, something like that, maybe more affordable. I don't know how easy it is to acquire one of those guys. If any of those guys are available that you like, that would presumably fit the protections that the Texans want to employ on this offensive line this year. I don't know yet. I haven't looked at that, but if you're going to get premium money, then you better be a premier, premier, the very best pass protector. You also have to be the very best among the very best run blockers. And you have to be one of the most disciplined players. Like, you got to be the best across the board. And Laramie Tunsil's not the best across the board. He's a penalty factory with the false starts, and he's not a great run blocker. He's an excellent pass protector. Period. That's it. You know, I was looking at draft profiles today and one of the, uh, you know, talking heads that the they have the Texans taking uh, 12th overall is uh, Skronkic, one of the best tackles in the draft. You know, the first sentence in his line says premium pass protector. He's a pass protecting specialist is actually the verbiage. You know what? If you play left tackle anywhere in college and NFL, that has to be on your resume. Don't tell me he's a specialist. That has to be the one thing you have to do well. Like, shut up with that. Like, is he disciplined? Can he run block? Is he athletic? Can he move? And these are some things that I worry about paying Laramie Tunsil for at this time if I'm the Houston Texans. Yeah, I, I, I'm just real scared about making that move. Just call me a scaredy cat. But I, I just, you know, you're, you're, there's a lot of moving parts to that. And again, I'm just going to go yep. back to the fact that you want to make sure that whatever quarterback you're bringing in is got his backside protected. And you can say you can find these pass protectors all the time. Look, I've been watching the Texans for a long time and no Dwayne Brown and no Laramie Tunsil. And it's been a disaster with a capital D trying to protect the quarterback. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm yeah. saying. Now, fair point. Fair point. It's, it's really, you know, it's difficult to argue with uh, given the state that the Texans are in and the opportunity that they have to maybe get a Bryce Young or CJ Stroud. Uh, I, you do want those book and tackles. However, you know, if they're able to, maybe they're making, made an offer that they simply can't refuse and it would be GM negligence. If in fact they turned it down, I'm, I'm here for that. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to that all day. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just yeah, I've I've seen I watched a lot of David Carr his backside getting lit up. So you. with the NCAA brackets released Sunday, it was supposed to be sunshine and rainbows on the Cougs today, but Marcus Sasser gets hurt on Saturday, which made me immediately think of what Sean said a week and a half ago. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I got a flash back to this clip. This is arguably the healthiest, you know, most seasoned, ready team to get this done. 
Sean, you didn't learn from the Lance McCullers thing at all? What happened? <laughs> hey, man, you know, I... <laughs> I I can't I can't talk sports and have all these filters, you know, all the time. It's it, part of the beauty of doing a podcast is it's unfiltered. You're going to say things. And you know what? It's on these players to figure it out and stay healthy. It's not on me. To hell with the jinx, okay? And, you know, by the way, McCullers is back throwing, so he'll be fine. And Sasser, after the uh, loss to Memphis. Whoa, 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 day, whoa, 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 whoa. You're, you're going to do that again? You're doubling down on Lance McCullers after – after seven years of Lance McCullers evidence, you're doubling down on Lance McCullers is going to be fine. I, I will see Lance McCullers. I hope I see him by October. Let's just say that. <laughs> hey, there's nothing I can do about it, man. It just all I could talk about is encouraging things. And what Lance is doing right now in spring training, uh, actually throwing a baseball again, it's encouraging. And words from Marcus Sasser after the loss to Memphis this weekend, encouraging that he's uh, confident that he'll be 100% by their first-round matchup against Northern Kentucky on Thursday. If they're not sure, you hold him out for this game, though. There's this is a 16th seed. Come on, you guys can win this game. Well, and they won a lot of those games last year without Marcus Sasser, you know, with a little bit of a different team. You know, they lost four seniors last year. Marcus Sasser came back and didn't make it a fifth, but – this team knows how to play shorthand. You know, one of the things that I'll go back and reference uh, was about probably a month and a half ago, close to two months ago. The Cougars played a really close game at home, um, and it was, I think, the first game that they didn't lead at halftime all season long. And they just had to claw their way back into this game, and they eked one out. And after the game, Kelvin Sampson was asked, so what did you learn about your team today? And he said, well, we learned that we can win without our best fastball, and we learned that we can win when we're not at full strength. And that was when they were missing like three contributors, trailing at halftime. They weren't hitting shots. They didn't have their best stuff, uh, but they did the things necessary and the things that they do really well. Play defense, and that's rebound. That got them in the game. Sometimes when the shots aren't falling, those two things become their offense. So they know how to win, and they know how to play without Marcus Sasser. If Memphis was the championship game in the tournament, the dude plays. Absolutely, 100% think he plays. Samson said after the game, you know what, if, if I would have played him and he would have gotten hurt, I couldn't have lived with myself. Why? Because it's a conference championship game. They were guaranteed a number one spot going into the tournament already. It didn't matter. And they got it. They didn't get the number one, number one overall like Alabama did, but they got a number one. That was the goal. Get to the tournament. Get back to the Elite Eight where they lost last season. And that's the unfinished business that Jamal shed. And specifically, Marcus Sasser has been talking about the last week or two that I've spoken to them. And hopefully uh, I'll have an opportunity to talk to Sasser later on today and we'll see what he says, if there's any kind of update on his health. But I think he'll be fine. And there's no doubt about it. Like they need him. They want him. And they're a much, much better team. You saw it firsthand but without him against Memphis. But they're a much better team with him. And uh, they are the favorite when they're fully healthy. The fun storyline from the bracket. I mean, the Cougs kind of were where I thought they would be. And I like the fact that they're in the Midwest bracket. But the fun storyline is we have a potential Longhorns Aggies game in the second round. And the Longhorns are also in the Cougs bracket. And wouldn't it be kind of fun to see yeah. the Texas Longhorns who you feel like at times might try to avoid playing against the Aggies in some sports and avoid playing the Cougs, get both of them in the same tournament. 
Yeah, that's the only beautiful thing, really, about how they crunched all the Texas teams into the same region. Because outside of that, you know, I'd, I'd like to see just how far, you know, those respective programs could go, the Aggies and Longhorns. But I was just talking about it this morning on Sports Radio 610 with Seth Payne that um, I'd really love to see a UH Texas matchup. You know, give us a little bit of a teaser to what they're only going to have maybe for a year, I think, before UT makes the jump along with OU to the SEC. But, you know, that that's going to be a heck of a deal if you get to see them. Uh, obviously, A&M, they've been really exciting this year to watch from a basketball sense. Obviously, a disappointing uh, game. Uh, who they lose to? I think it was Alabama, right, in the championship game. But yeah, anytime you can get two Texas schools, you know, pitted against each other, and most importantly, Houston against an A&M or a UT, two programs that for decades just looked down upon the Cougars, now this year, they're amongst the favorites to win the whole darn thing. It'd be fantastic. The one team that scares me is the team that beat the Cougars earlier this year, Bama. I mean, they just look like they're, they're, they're the team to beat to me. I, I would say the Cougars are because, you know, I'm a big Cougar fan, but I, I'm not going to say that. I, I just I refuse to say that. I just think that that Bama team is for real. I watched them play my Missouri Tigers this week, and Missouri played them toe-to-toe, played a hell of a game with them, and just their depth. And that defense is just suffocating and they can shoot the ball. It's, it's everything that you want in a tournament team. You know, Kelvin Sampson said there's not a great team in the country. There's a lot of really good teams and they're one of them. But I'd say over the course of the last three games that Alabama and Houston have played, Alabama certainly looked a lot closer to the, a great team than that of the Cougars. But not to take anything away from Houston – because a lot of the things that I think they do really, really well, exceptionally well, some of the best defense and rebounding in the country, talking about Houston, I think can really give Alabama some problems. And we saw it, you know, earlier this season. The Cougs, you know, you can make an argument, they really should have won that game against Alabama. They just, they couldn't hit shots. They were struggling from the perimeter. The free throws were a massive issue at that point in time. They seem to have cleaned, you know, some of that stuff up towards the end of the season when I've said numerous times, I think they're clicking on all cylinders now, but it's the offense, man. That Alabama offense just looks really freaking good. And the Cougars scare me sometimes, you know, they go through these cold stretches and it's really difficult to bounce out of them, but I'm here for that problem. And I'd love to see that team down the road. Quick reminder that I posted a Rockets conversation with Frank from Rockets Chop Shop. Sean, we recorded it before Jabari posted his second straight 2010 game he's shooting 54 percent over his last five games 45 percent from three i've said it all season if jabari is playing like the guy we thought we drafted this wouldn't have been such a dreadful season to watch i thought he couldn't shoot <laughs> i thought he couldn't shoot everybody's freaking out about his shot now, you know what like I- i'm not gonna lie to you i don't watch wire to wire every rocket game i can't i can't they're too bad I check in on them pretty regular, okay? And I'll tell you this much. My observation from Jabari is <laughs> the ball looks really good coming out of his hands, okay? I think he can shoot. I think he'll figure it out. Yeah, the, so the, we- I think the panic was, and and, and, and I, I brought this up, you know, when he was struggling. You know, look, he had a great year in college last year shooting the basketball. That's 30 games. Mm-hmm. We watched the Rockets now for 60 games until – these last couple with Jabari and he looked bad and it wasn't just a 60 game sample size. He looked bad in the preseason. He looked bad in the summer league. 
it wasn't just bad. He went through a stretch of like two months where he was shooting 20% from three. He could not hit the broadside of a barn. And my point was that shooters have short memories and can self-correct. And you can go, oh, well, we got to get a better shooting coach. You're not going to – shooting coaches are a little bit overrated in the NBA and and college basketball. A lot of times it's guys just putting in the work and understanding, okay, what am I doing wrong? And I've got to correct it. And you have to have a short memory as a shooter. And that's what I got to see from Jabari going forward is he's going to have to have a shorter memory and start just like getting his stuff. He's he's in his head a lot. I think it just takes time, man. He's a young player and he's been putting in the work. He's been working a lot on his shot. You know, I talked to my brother about this a number of times over the course of the season. I think it was maybe about, I don't know, closer to a couple of months ago now to where he was telling me the process and that how Jabari was going about analyzing his shot, how he could fix it and make it better. The guy's been busting his butt and it doesn't happen in the course of a week or two weeks. Sometimes it takes, you know, a couple of months. Sometimes it takes a whole season. I think you're starting to see him put it together. But I also think too, that if you listen to him talk, I mean, I don't know who was uh, guarding him the other day, but he took exception to it. He took it as an insult. Right. They put like a, a smaller guy on him and he was like, that's disrespectful. And I think he's gaining confidence. I think he's got a chip on his shoulder. And, you know, in basketball, what that can do to a particular player. They just they're able to rise up, take their game to a different level. And maybe they're able to focus in a little bit more. Maybe they're able to, you know, pull that extra, you know, 30 percent out in the course of a workout that they typically couldn't before. But now they've got this extra motivation. You don't know all the factors at play. Maybe he's just sitting back and saying, you know what? I'm so sick and tired of dealing with all this crap. It's such a circus around here. I'm going to put my head down and really go to work. And now he's starting to see the fruits of his labor. Yeah, I think he's a terrific player. I thought, you know, the Rockets getting him, I think, what was it, the second or third pick? I thought he was, uh, you know, pre-draft, he was, you know, slotted to go number one overall. I feel like the, 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 the Rockets still got, you know, a number one overall pick. I think he's that talented. He'll be fine. You just want to see him take that next step, have a really good finish to this season. But once they get a real coaching staff in here and start running a real program, then we could talk about that next step in his sophomore and junior year, so to speak, in the NBA. Go back and listen to me and Frank, but let's go to baseball because, you know, I guess baseball junkies were focusing on the Astros and the WBC tourney this weekend, but perhaps lost in the shuffle was the passing of a Houston Astro from the 60s and 70s. Over the weekend, I put up a tribute to him on our YouTube channel. Uh, we'll come back a, a little bit, Sean, but just a quick uh, look at the tribute that I put together. This week, we lost former Astros outfielder Jesus Alou at the age of 80. This is a tribute because we've got to talk about him with the Alou family being baseball royalty. He, along with his brothers, Matty and Felipe, led the way for Dominican players. Jesus was the 13th Dominican in the majors, although the third in his own family. The three brothers played a combined 5,000 major league games. And of course, most of you Astros fans remember Jesus's nephew, Moises Alou, from those great late 90s Astros teams. Jesus had two Astros stints, 69 to 73, when the Astros traded the great Rusty Staub to get him. He comes back at the end of his career in 78 and 79. That last season, he wasn't just a player. He was also the Astros hitting coach. In 15 big league seasons, he won two World Series, mostly as a role player in the Oakland A's early 70s dynasty. His 280 career batting average 
pretty darn good, but he hit over 300 in four of the seasons that he played for the Astros. And the pitcher's ballpark that was the Astrodome, that was a huge deal. And to say Jesus was a free swinger is a massive understatement. His walk rate of three walks for every 100 plate appearances was the lowest in the 20th century for someone who played over 1,000 games. But most importantly, Jesus was a beloved teammate. Astros pitcher and acclaimed baseball author Jim Bouton wrote in one of his books that Jesus was, quote, one of the most delicate, sensitive, nicest men I have ever met. He'd walk a mile out of his way to drop a coin in some beggar's cup. He had quite a legacy, and Alou was a baseball lifer. After his playing career, he was an expo scout. He was the Marlins' director of Dominican operations. He held that same position for the Red Sox, and he finished up as an international scouting and player development department ambassador for the Red Sox until 2020. He'll be remembered as the little brother of a pioneering family. He said Felipe, Maddie, and him were very different, but we had one thing in common. We didn't like to strike out. Maybe because we used to play with rubber balls in our backyard. As long as a guy didn't strike out, he could just keep batting. And we all like to bat. That's the legacy of Astros pioneer, Jesus Salud. Yeah, I thought it might be a little bit under the radar, Sean. Uh, Jesus was a guy that wasn't a great player, but his family and all of you you saw there was just very, I think, big deal in baseball history. Yeah, uh, you know, the Alus, you summed it up perfectly. We've heard it referred to as uh, baseball roy- royalty uh, many, many times before in relation to, you know, the career of Felipe Alou, his brother, Matty Alou as well, you know, his nephew, Moises Alou. But, you know, there's two guys you didn't mention, too. The Alus, certainly, uh, you know, all the guys that share that last name, the brothers and nephews. What about the uh, Rojas, Rojases, you know, Luis Rojas, who, um, you know, are, are related to uh, Jesus and the Alou family as well. Uh, I think it was uh, Luis who, uh, you know, got to manage the uh, the New York Mets for a couple of years. And then Mel Rojas, boy, he played for a number of teams. I feel like I remember him mostly with like Montreal. He was a pretty good closer, like back in the early to mid nineties uh, for them. Uh, that's just a great baseball family, whether you shared the name or not. And uh, I just remember, you know, when Moises Alou was a Houston Astro, you know, watching him on TV, the calls uh, with Bill Brown uh, and Jim Deshays, uh, I believe was the team back then. They always had an Alou little tidbit or anecdote to add whenever Moises would come up to bat in a big situation. And you always uh, heard them mention and talk about, you know, Felipe or Maddie, uh, or obviously, you know, Jesus and um, it, it's it's really, really uh, a, a great family uh, to read about if you're into baseball history, because very, very few, um, you know, families have been a part of the game as much as they have. The only thing I got to say about the WBC is Hector Norris, you, you don't throw it high and inside to Jose Altuve. Come on, brother. Come on. <laughs> you know, Jose was having some fun with it. Uh, Hector was like yeah get out of the way bro <laughs> he was he was like game face serious like you know just back up i know what you can do so back up off of the plate get off me um he was having some fun did you see what dusty baker said about the whole thing 
they asked Dusty Baker, it's like, hey, you know, did you see the Neris and uh, Altuve encounter? And he was like, yeah. I was like, oh, boy. Uh, but the TV ended up watching me, alluding to that him he fell asleep watching the WBC. But just said glad- he had nightmares uh, <laughs> last night over that. Yeah, just glad to know is uh, one of his best players is A-OK and Jose Altuve, who's tearing it up, by the way. Yeah, of course he is. Uh, all the Roughnecks do is win, 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 no matter what, what, what. Uh, 44-16, the final. Sean, what was the coolest part of this game? Do you know what I want to talk about here? The coolest part of the game? Uh, not particularly, no. What do you got? I loved the double forward pass touchdown. Oh, yeah. Didn't yeah. even know this was an XFL rule, Sean. For anybody who missed it and don't know, if you complete a forward pass behind the line of scrimmage, you can throw another forward pass as long as you don't go past the line of scrimmage. But the story behind it is even better. Roughnecks OC AJ Smith, who worked on the first Roughnecks staff, said he'd thought about using it when he was on that June Jones staff. But Smith said he didn't get a chance to. He spent a lot of time with Mike Leach prior to the Roughnecks. And the play was actually a Leach designed play smith said that play was in honor of coach leach pretty cool very cool yeah i didn't know that last little part about it but uh yeah i saw that (laughs) this past weekend and i was just like oh my goodness like the gimmicky things that the xfl brings to us all like i don't know if i would like to see something like that in the nfl um i mean what the heck i mean it's more action and you know it'd just be a nightmare for secondary guys (laughs) I mean, can you imagine, like, you just can't take your eyes off of anybody. You got to follow those guys all the way down the field, stay in coverage. But that was a really cool play. Um, you know, congrats to uh, the Roughnecks, Wade Phillips' crew for pulling that one off. Uh, I think that ended up being a sports center top fiver, at least. So it was, it was a really cool thing. The Texans just figuring out how to execute a screen pass is all that I want from them, basically. <laughs> oh, they'll be fine. You can't talk. You can't be cynical about an offense or a defense anymore. It's a completely different regime, okay? You can be cynical from an organizational standpoint. You can't really make fun of them for anything they, uh, they'll do on the field going forward. because there, There's no predictive that. thing on this. It's just I've watched 20 years of bad screens for the Texans. That's like it's, – it's been 20 – I don't know if any – Maybe the Kubiak, there was a couple of times where the Kubiak screens were, were good, but man, under Bill O'Brien, it was a disaster. I don't think it worked real well under Dom Capers. Doesn't help when your quarterbacks aren't always that great either, but yeah, it's it's been bad. Well, you know, if you don't have good blocking wide receivers, you know, it's a really difficult thing to, um, you know, execute. I would have to imagine that it, in large part, it's not a very successful play regardless what team you're with. I'll tell you this much, fire Bobby Slowick on the spot, if he ever thinks it's a good idea that the Texans have a halfback pass. Because I've seen it in two regimes already, and the Texans aren't that old of a franchise. This is only their sixth head coach in franchise history. I don't need to see another halfback pass at any point in time with anybody. I don't care what kind of athlete they are, what kind of arm they have, or how tricky you think your offense is. It doesn't need to happen. If you're so good, you can do it other ways. Man, uh, everything else, we, we can talk about all this other stuff, but and I know the free agency stuff. I'm excited about it, but let's get to the March Madness. And you and I, I, I want to say we're going to try to do a Saturday post game if the Cougars can handle their business. I ain't counting anything right now on Thursday. You got to handle your business Thursday. But 
Sean, what do you think? Maybe a Saturday postgame show? I'm Live down. Room? You sound like Kelvin Sampson. You know, Kelvin Sampson was talking the other day. He's like, well, you know, somebody's out there going to pick Northern Kentucky. The hell they are. Ain't nobody picking Northern Kentucky to beat Houston. Get out of here. Well, They're there's some, some mom, moms and dads that are going to pick them over with the Northern Kentucky. Uh, yeah, you go ahead and screw your bracket up that you, you know, paid $10 for on the Yahoo account or whatever. You go right ahead and do that. But not going to happen, man. Uh, well, I'm here for that after uh, uh, any game uh, going forward. We're going to hopefully have a lot of games to uh, talk about. It's a fun time of year in sports. We'll do this again soon, man. Yes, sir. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on YouTube. You can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.